This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Welcome to Primal Screen, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. I am your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and joining me again for our second week of looking at the Melbourne International Film Festival's online lineup of films are here with me at Sunny Triple R Studios in downtown Brunswick, Cerise Howard. Evening, Paul. Evening. And broadcasting again from the comfort of her own home, wine in hand, is Ms. <laughs> Emma Westwood. I can't believe you outed me on that. <laughs> that was that sounds so unprofessional. We're all friends. Um, we're all friends here. Uh, uh, well, we're on the same therapy program. I think that we're doing what we have to do to get through, Paul. That's what we're doing. Exactly right. This is what I'm talking <laughs> as long about. As, it, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. Exactly. That's all. <laughs> so all of this is with the unfortunate news that the continuing case numbers of you-know-what have forced an extension of our sixth lockdown here in Melbourne. So why not order yourself some fancy takeaway and indulge yourself in the latest of what Australian and world cinema has to offer this week as close to 100 films and five short film packages are available to rent on Miff Play at play.miff.com.au until this Sunday night. We'll be looking at a whole ton of films. Uh, first, Cerise will lead us through Dear Comrades, director Andre Konchalovsky's period piece about a Soviet official trying to find her missing daughter as Khrushchev U- USSR goes to hell in a handbasket before offering some further recommendations. Then Emma will stop off at a spooky hotel in the Iranian-American horror film from debut director Kurusha Hari, The Night, as well as a few more titles you should check out. And I will join... Uh, I'll go on a revenge mission with a, uh, a very angry Mads Mikkelsen and his merry band of damaged oddballs in Ander, Anders Thomas Jensen's dark comedy drama Riders of Justice before offering some further wrecks of my own. Also, as you listen to us chatting about these films, please feel free to hit us up on our social media channels and leave a comment. Search for Primal Screen on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So uh, now let us join Cerise by the computer for her Miff Play Toots and Boots of the Week. I wanted people to know who I really am. We get it? Yep. One of the reasons why I wanted to make a documentary in the first place is because I would finally be in control of the narrative. All I can say is that somewhere along the way, things went terribly wrong. Uh, sorry, he's looked at me there about the Toots and Boots comments. Sorry, it's just another of my many uh, RuPaul's Drag Race references. Of course. Uh, <laughs> um... 
So that was a clip there from the mockumentary hybrid, The Nowhere Inn, co-written by Annie Clark, better known as St. Vincent, and Sleater Kenny and Portlandia star Gary Brownstein, um, which we may or may not be chatting about soon. But first, we're going to look at Dear Comrades. Yeah, because nothing gets a party started like discussing a film about a massacre. Um, <laughs> if only Quavitis, uh, Quavitis, Quavitis, Aida was still in the online offerings, I believe Palace Cinemas will yet be uh, unspooling that absolute gem of this year's MIF program. Um, when cinemas resume ordinary <laughs> functioning. Another fallen comrade of the... Another uh... <laughs> dear comrade to have... Yeah. COVID casualty. Yeah. <laughs> Well, look, dear comrades, actually, for a film that is about some quite bleak subject matter, it actually does have a few lighter moments to it. There's something kind of satirical about the the vibe of this film. Andrei Konchalovsky could have waded, had us totally immersed in miserabilism for the whole runtime of this exquisitely shot film, high contrast, black and white. Um, uh, about a a massacre, which doesn't come particularly early in the film. It's more about setting the scene, the sort of environment that gave rise to this in what was notionally a post-Stalinist time when massacres were supposed to be a thing that the Soviets had dispensed with. It was a a nicer, friendlier, less Stalinist Soviet Union. A cuddly Soviet Union. A a cuddly... (laughs) Somewhat more of a teddy bear figure, Khrushchev... uh, vis-a-vis Stalin. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so we follow one quite fanatical party member's uh, journey to deal with the reality as it quickly carries her away that um, her fanaticism is putting her at direct odds against the safety of her, her daughter um, who is young and part of a, a, a crowd that assembles at the front of party headquarters where a fireman's ball-esque level of incompetence in trying to <laughs> flee the premises uh, has, has given rise to just, you know, there's mayhem and and then a, uh, a massacre. Uh, and it is um, a masterful work by someone who has led one of the more peculiar careers of for Soviet filmmakers. I was looking at that. He's, so he's done everything from Russian and lit- literary and dramatic adaptations like Nest of the Gentry and Miss Julie to uh, dramas set against wartime like this and House of Fools and Paradise and, of course, notably American action epics like Runaway Train and Tango and Cash. Unless we forget Tango and Cash. Well, not I mean, earlier on, he was one of the two most legendary Andres who combined to to make the most legendary cinematic Andrei of all, Andrei Rublev. So him and Tarkovsky wrote that. Uh, He was a, yeah, he's such a storied filmmaker and yet it's such a peculiar career he's had and yet he's um, ageing very well. This is a really masterful, stunning film and it isn't as miserable as it might have been because there is some dark, dark comedy in the midst of it. He turns 84 in mm. uh, the mid-next week um, or mid-this week. Uh, I'd, also, I'd also argue that Tango and Cash is like is, – feels like a Russian looking at America in the 80s. I'm just going to say that. It's, it's like one of the best movies about America in the 80s, hilariously so. Emma, did you catch Dear Comrades as well? I did. I caught Dear Comrades. I was quite transfixed with this as well. I think that uh, what uh, Cerise was saying about not being quite as miserable as you would expect it to be is a really good point. And um, a very delicate balancing act that he's managed 
to pull off to, you know, perfection, I would say. It's beautifully, beautifully done. Um, the high contrast black and white. Um, I'm not sure, but Cerise, whether you know, it was a shot on, was it a shot on digital? I, I don't film. know. I don't know, but I yeah. could well believe it were on film, um, but I don't know. Yeah, because I was thinking that it could, it sort of had a look, I, I think it was because of the pristine, super sharp nature that it looked like it, it was possibly still digitally shot, um, but then but it's in, and whited as it, such. It's in a smaller aspect ratio, isn't it? It is. Yeah, that, it is. Mm. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, gorgeous nevertheless, and I think that high cr- contrast kind of takes away from the griminess and there is grimy in there, but there's just, um, it, it's, there can be a lot of Russian cinema that's very hard to find an in. Brilliant stuff, still hard to watch and hard to find an in. This film is not that. I think it's a very uh, unusually easy film to watch um, and getting that pitch, that tone correct is a very hard thing to do, but beautifully done. Not only that, but it just um, plays on the Russianness. Mm-hmm. In the there's a lot of um, slapping people over the head, and you know there's a lot of anger. There's the hardness of the faces, like our our lead actress, our she's our lead protagonist in it, is. Um, you know, she's got flinty eyes. She's really, you know, she's got a, uh, it's not a, there's no beauty lenses put on this film, um, which wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense. It just shows how it really sh- um, brings you in at a time straight away. It, it sets with the look, the, the look of the people, the character, what is happening. You get a really good feel for the establishment of where this comes from, where even if you don't have a really good um, handle of Russian history. Um, Super accomplished, really interesting. I'd encourage a lot of people to to see this, even if they didn't think that this would be, oh, Russian cinema, I I won't venture there. I say do it. Yeah. And if you and if anyone's inclined to see Russian cinema, definitely. Yeah, it's uh, it was shot on digital, shot on the Ari Alexa. Oh, and there you go. Um, yeah, and our lead actress is now Yulia uh, Visotskaya. That's very good. She's Paul. incredible. <laughs> yeah, she is, and her performance is it's, you know it's a little mannered, it's a little heightened. It's not quite at a, a really realistic pitch somehow, the tenor of it. But um, it's also, it, it's not, yeah, there, there is a, a farce, an element of farce to this, this film. And, and that she is one of the, the people most um, responsible for things escalating, that she has to deal with those consequences. There's, there's a, some real pathos there. Um, so, yeah, is it, it is a comedy, is it really? Discuss. I don't know. Oh, yeah. I mean, it <laughs> kind of is. There are comical elements. That it's tragedy comedy or a commie tragedy or commie tragedy. <laughs> commie tragedy. That's quite good, exactly. actually. Yeah. <laughs> <A> commie <laughs> tragedy. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. That's the quote of the night. That's a going commie on. Commie tragedy. That's right. fantastic. My cool. work here is done. I'm off. <laughs> cool, Andre. That's going on the poster. A commie tragedy. Uh, so <laughs> if you want to watch a commie tragedy, uh, Hit, hit up Dear Comrades on the Myth Play website. Cerise, what else have you seen this week that you've enjoyed or you're at least think is interesting? Um, I've just got to remind myself I've been watching quite a bit. Um, 
And I mean, obviously, well, are we going to talk about the nowhere in sooner or later? We could talk about it now if you like. I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Yeah, do it. Mm-hmm. I yeah. didn't get to see this one, but you but did. you will. Mm. I did. Yeah, I had a ton of, <laughs> ton of fun with this. I was a little bit invested in in it, in, in as much as I admire St Vincent's um, music. I didn't know terribly much about her personality and and distinction between persona versus. Annie Clark self. Mm-hmm. Um, and Carrie Brownstein, I've enjoyed her work for a long time in Slater Kinney and, and, and on screen too. Portlandia. Yeah, mm-hmm. but also she's had some good cameos in other uh, like series like Transparent. Um, and yeah, so uh, and this is rather fun. It, it becomes quite phantasmagoric. It starts off, it's a slow burner uh, as uh, Carrie Brownstein playing herself notionally is trying to tease out something more interesting about Annie Clark because this documentary she's making of her tour just isn't eliciting much interesting material other than concert footage because it seems <laughs> that Annie Clark is actually desperately dull. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for, my friends. <laughs> but where, where, um, where the division and persona between Annie and St Vincent uh, begins and ends and where what Carrie Brownstein is willing into being begins and ends. It all comes very, very blurry indeed and at times really very funny um, and occasionally a little disturbing, including a, a very hilarious kind of sex scene, which um, made me chuckle a lot. Um, <laughs> did it make you chuckle oh, too? Yes. That, that with, um, should we say who was um, involved in that It's Dakota in that scene? Johnson, isn't it? Well, yes. Well, well, obviously. Well, yes. We should say so looking that. very, <laughs> looking very Saint Vincent esque in a, in a and, um, quite comical and, sort of way too, and <laughs> playing herself, mm. playing Dakota Johnson. So, yeah. So, did you? So, you like this, um, Cerise? I'm guessing. I did like this. Did you not? I wouldn't say I disliked it, but I didn't find it. It didn't. It. It wasn't that. It's not going to stay with me. I don't think it's going to stay with me. I liked what um, they were doing and I could see it was, I think that in in the way that um, we were talking about Dear dear Comrades getting this mix perfectly done, I don't think they quite made it in this film. I wasn't quite sure of the tone where they were going, that tonal mix, the recipe didn't quite come together for me. It it did remind me of something that um, played at Myth actually quite a few years ago when was it about 2005 2006 called brothers of the head i don't oh, know yeah. whether oh, wow. I do you saw that, that. is it a canadian yeah. film no, no um but ken russell was loosely attached to it if i recall oh. somehow not as director but there was some link um, something yeah it yeah. was anthony dodd mantle shot it uh it was a, actually a co-directorial um film and it was another music scene film but it was about Conjoined twins yeah. who were taken, uh, groomed, being groomed as the kind of next big thing in really punk music. Uh, I think that's pitched as rock, but it was really mm-hmm. punk. And that one sort of started, I thought it had a similar trajectory, but I thought that worked much better for me, maybe because it was the first one I'd seen. Do you know what I mean? So then this is kind of coming off the back of that for me. Yeah, right. Um, And because it went from more lighthearted material to something a little bit more serious. But, you know, it's always interesting to see films that are playing with this kind of meta stuff, like, you know, Dakota Johnson coming in playing herself. And obviously, you know, the Annie Clark St. Vincent thing, that's really quite 
interesting because isn't she notoriously secretive anyway um, as a, as her real self? So it's, Maybe. Maybe that's maybe. part of the joke. So, yeah, it's this kind of um, little commentary on herself or she's kind of, you know, taking the piss out of herself in she, some way. Um, and they're, just, best, best, they're best friends as well, Carrie Brownstein and her. Is that correct? Well, they wrote so, this together and produced yeah. it. Um, but I don't know. I have no idea. Did you just see a horror film from a few years ago called Double X? There was f- four short films made by women. No. Because no. Annie Clark made one of those. It was oh. this oh, uh, set really? at a horrific ch- uh, children's birthday party. Um, so she's, yeah, she's she's an interesting cat when it comes to this. I, I, I know very little about her music. Um, but, yeah, but it's uh, having seen, yeah, it, it's interesting. It clearly has an interesting voice. So I think if any someone came, you know, has the Portlandia interest or definitely in Carrie Brownstein, you know, the Slater Kinney and the St Vincent stuff, sure, go for it. I think there's enough in there yeah, to, it's fun. to grab someone. It's yeah, not going to have the depth of, or, of say, a Dare Comrades because there's not really much at stake ultimately. Yes. Um, <laughs> but it's fun. Do you have uh, one more uh, recommendation to send us out with or are you uh... – um, I'll just – Perhaps walk back on that Ken Russell connection to the brothers of the head. He's in it. Um, oh, he is in it. There He's was a link it. that yeah. was filed away in the and, bonkers file effacts. And, and, yeah, and I can't it, even. Oh, yes, you're right. And, he, and it stars it the now very famous Treadaway twins. What are they famous Harry for? Harry, and one of them was in uh, Penny Dreadful for a few seasons um, and oh. on stage in the National Theatre's um, uh, The uh, the case of the dog in the night time. The, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and yeah, they're both uh, they're both kind of fixtures in uh, UK cinema. They were wonderful. They were really wonderful in this. I think if anyone, could, it's sort of a film that's kind of lost. I know we were talking about mm. <laughs> nowhere in a myth films. Well, we're going back now. Brothers <laughs> of the Head. If you can find it, definitely watch it. The best of myth two thousand and five. That's what we're yeah, here. Yeah. that's what we're here to celebrate. <laughs> well, I'm going to take us even further back, and yet. To the here and now as well. Footage shot in the early 70s by Orson Welles. Uh, Orson <laughs> Welles has a new film out. I mean, they keep coming. The Other Side <laughs> of the Wind a couple of years ago debuted on Netflix. Um, He's and, like Prince. Yeah, He's going to keep opening really. the vaults. Well, may that continue to happen because all of these long mythologized, unfinished projects are beginning <laughs> to emerge. And this was, this was connected with The Other Side of the Wind. This is uh, interview footage by Orson Welles, often in character, in a character that he ultimately didn't play in The Other Side of the Wind. It was um, inhabited by another legend, John Houston. But um, this is basically two hours of watching Dennis Hopper getting grilled by that unmistakable, rich voice um, and strident uh, manner, Orson Welles. Um, and drinking with, gin and tonic. Yeah, yeah, those <laughs> bottles quite quickly mount up on that tabletop. <laughs> As they discuss uh, filmmaking and motivations and politics and dodging politics and uh, all manner of things uh, in um, black and white, quite cam- dizzying camera movement-y sort of images of um, that. I, I don't know if they were ever going to see the light of day, but lo and behold, suddenly they have. Um, and Orson Welles gets a new credit in the IMDb. <laughs> I mean, he died when? Oh, God, 1985, 86? Yeah, quite a long time 86, ago. yeah. Um, but, yeah. Pre-COVID. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, St. Vincent and Carrie Brownstein playing versions of themselves here. I think Hopper and Wells, I don't know how much either of them are themselves exactly. Wells is notionally in character. Um, 
But uh, Hopper seems really lucid. I mean, notionally, he was off chops for years and years around this time in the the wake of the success of Easy Rider and no doubt beforehand too. And yet he, for the most part, seems pretty aware of his immediate surroundings (laughs) and what's going on and is enjoying the interrogation. I mean, the lighting is interrogation worthy. Yeah. Um, It's super fun. Caught him on a good day. Now, <laughs> M, I'm fascinated because you said you didn't get through this. No, I didn't. I was meant to get back and watch the rest of it, but I think that was indicative of how I saw this, as in I saw it as um, really great, interesting extras on a special edition of The Other Side of the Wind or something like that. I didn't see it. I, it didn't feel like a go-to-woe cinematic experience for me. <laughs> <laughs> just so self-indulgent like it was so self-indulgent well self-indulgent what are you talking about well once they got to the bit where they were talking about the filmmaker as god i just had to (laughs) (laughs) had to stop for a while um but you know amazing interesting people but it's just yeah the self-indulgence was a little bit too much for me. I will go and watch the rest of it. I'm, I'm quite positive of that. But um, it's just something that, um, yeah, I think I like it in morsels, in bite-sized morsels, not in a two-hour stretch. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fair enough. There's some really funny stuff in there and, and some yeah. really interesting. I mean, obviously, they're cinephiles, so you can totally nerd out as they nerd out as well at times. And they're having discussions that I have with my students about whether Antonioni is slow or whether the characters in his films are all bored or what's going on with people in Love and Cheer and why doesn't he know when to cut? <laughs> yeah, I did like that. Yeah. Uh, Dennis Hopper talked a lot about Antonioni. That was, and didn't like Love and Cheer, which no. I love. So, you know, Likewise, but anyway. he was all about La Notte. He was a big fan. Yeah. Yes, he mm. was. <laughs> So, dear comrades, The Nowhere Inn and Hopper Wells are all available to rent online on the Miff Play streaming platform until Sunday, August 22nd. Visit play.miff.com.au. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Cerise Howard, Emma Westwood, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. So now it's Emma's turn to take over the remote and uh, point us in the direction, or the keyboard, I should say, of some of her recommendations currently available on Miff Play, starting with this one. Someone's been disturbing the sunlight. I'm sorry, I didn't see anyone. Excuse me. Hello? Are you lost? So The Night is the debut feature, directed by Kurush Ahari. Uh, It's an Iranian-American horror film. Uh, Lost and low on petrol on their way home after dinner, married couple Badak and Nida, played by Shahab Shahab Hosseini and uh, Nyusha Noor, decide to spend the night at the Hotel Normandy with their baby daughter. Uh, there, it's eerily deserted, but they book a room anyway. Inexplicable happenings soon occur, some, uh, coaxing tensions, some brewing since a period of separation while Nita was still in Iran to surface, forcing the couple to face fractures in their marriage on top of the malicious forces that are inching ever closer. Emma, is this hotel going to get any stars on Yelp from you? <laughs> this is a great little horror movie. I, I really very much enjoyed this film. Uh, 
I think it's interesting from a number of uh, angles. First of all, it's set in the US, which is um, interesting in itself to be, you usually think when there's an Iranian um, co-production, you usually would, or well, and anything American <laughs> co-production sort of seems to be set in the, the foreign com- country for some reason. But um, this one... This one I liked. It had this setup where they there was uh, the couples. They were having um, there was sort of three, two couples I think, and one friend, female friend, and she was uh, the the kind of to- the token American, I guess you could say, at the party, who also sort of engaged in a little bit of Farsi language, you know, and sort of dipped in and out of English. But usually we kind of you'd, you'd have a different dynamic you would have the um you know the farsi being the language that peppers the the english uh so it was very it was very focused on the iranian despite being in 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 america um that's kind of you know but that wasn't the focus of the film this film is essentially a horror genre film but um it, it kind of went from this gathering. I, I'm not sure about you, Paul. You've seen it, haven't you? Yes, yeah. Uh, all right. I'd like to get your um, uh, impressions of the opening, uh, how they had this this kind of discussion at the opening that then led into them going to this hotel. And then it sort of um, – it was almost like it was a foreword to the film, I would say. And then it came into the the horror element of the film itself. Yet there were like kind of little teasers, like the way that there was the shot, the 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 baby um, in the mm. in the cot, and the way the there was a baby POV almost at one stage, which was quite interesting. You're kind of thinking, where is this going to lead? The ba- in fact, the baby POV is interesting because you think of how that kind of carries through the rest of the film. Mm. Um, but uh, then it, it's a horror film that's very plays on eeriness and um, ghostliness and being caught in cycles and doesn't play on jump scares, which I really, you know, really... Um, applauded it for mm. because I'm I find jump scares really lazy even though I will jump at a jump scare <laughs> that makes me angry because <laughs> it just seems like a cheap shot yeah but so that yeah we go from this social environment they go into the they they end up they have a, a little there's a tension between the couple They've got the baby in the back of the car. There's tension because he's been drinking. Um, and there's this weird thing well. where he doesn't want to stay at their house, but it's too far yeah, home. So they're going to, yeah, yeah. So they're going to stop at this really eerie, interesting hotel. I liked it. I thought it was a great looking hotel with a very strange kind of concierge. And then they just get caught in this cycle of um, people knocking on their doors. Um, Kids running uh, up and down the hallways. Going up and down the um, um, sort of doppelgangers of themselves, uh, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to say where it goes. I don't think it's really super explicit why or where it's where it really goes. But um, I didn't feel like it needed to be wrapped up in a, a perfect package. It was um, a fabulous little film, and Shahab Husseini, who's um, from the salesman. I, I look, I love the salesman. And um, I thought that 
he was sensational in it. Um, so there's the, it's the As- Asghar Fahadi film, The Salesman, I'm talking about. He was fantastic in, in this. Um, also, Nyusha Noor as um, Nada was fantastic in it. The, the performances were top notch. And also that they kind of played on sort of, you know, elements, a lot of demascul- uh, demasculate, uh, emasculation of him, mm-hmm. I would say, um, which is kind of, you know, a big thing to play with in, in terms of an Iranian man, a very mm. proud Iranian man. Um, also, they get tattoos, which is a very interesting thing mm. as well, um, and drink shots. Yes. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, just a little bit left of centre, would I say. Yeah, a little this, bit of um, American yeah. influence, shall we say. Yeah, yeah. Tell so you how what, did you feel, Paul? Tell you what it? else had a little bit of influence on this, The Shining. Yeah, yeah, the, you're right. The Shining yeah. is virtually tattooed into this film's sleeve. It's not just mm. on it, but in it. Um, the hotel, I mean, even the way the hotel's set out is like a micro version of The Shining, particularly the lobby in a lot of ways. Um, you know, the, the caretaker gives off a few sort of Grady vibes. Um, yeah, so this is Karusha Hari's debut film. Uh, he's the writer, director, editor, and co-producer of the film. Um, it's very stylish. Um, it's full of atmosphere. There's lots of unnerving moments. Um, it makes a great trailer. It's one of those films that has so many grabs that you watch the trailer to this film, and you're like, yeah, this is this is going to be off the hook. And I think it has a great idea at its core. Um, this this um, and I guess I don't want to get too much into what that idea is, but mm. there's a reason they can't leave the hotel. Um, but. I I just don't, it didn't work for me in the end. Um, I, I feel like it, um, it it fits into the Iranian tradition of moving really slowly, and it's like this is a film that needed to be a tight ninety, and it's uh, you know an hour forty five, and just really spins its wheels for a bit too long, and I think it sort of undoes its tension and. I think it starts off as kind of a character piece. Like, yeah, I'm I'm still trying to work out, other than establishing the, the, these friends that they have and they call throughout the film in order to try and get out, I don't know how much relevance the opening has in the rest of the film. There's, there's passing in- mentions of a couple of things that become important later, but it does... I feel like I need to watch it sort again. Of baffle me a bit. Like it's uh, yeah, I don't know. It just seemed a little bit. It seemed warm and 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 sort of very. And it was it was weird because unlike the rest of the film, it's very fast paced. It's very kind of everybody's um, you know dialogues overlapping. It's very lively, and then it sort of really kind of gears down. Um, I just feel like the couple's relationship wasn't particularly well developed uh, they just seem to be annoyed at each other from the get-go and really love like loving enough to get matching tattoos but like the da- that day or the day before but are just constantly at each other all the time i felt that was more of a desperation measure yeah. to keep them together yeah and then they're never like they're they're kind of a red herring i yeah i just you, i, I had a lot of questions in this film yeah. Do you feel that this has a bit of an Ari Aster thing going on about it? You know that kind of like that start to the film that doesn't that sort of seems like a separate film to, to yeah. when the horror kicks in. A little in. bit, a little bit. I mean, yeah. I'd say it's not quite Ari Aster because this film is actually sincere. But <laughs> um, ow, yeah. 
Um, but there's, I just, yeah, I really, I, I just, it, there's, there's a point where it's like this guy's willing to sacrifice his family, and it's like it, we should really know what exactly what his damage is, and we don't. The film makes it makes hers very implicit and his very obscure, to the point where it's like you just his character motivations are are really muddy and I yeah I just didn't I, I thought their rift yeah it just wasn't quite and and I feel like it does begin to become unglued as a character piece and then by the end it just sort of seemed like a bunch of stuff that was happening a bunch of very stylish there were some jump scares now and again but it just felt very everything just felt like oh this is just more weird stuff happening um mm. but there's definitely like there's definitely a creep factor to this and there's definitely a command of atmosphere yeah, I just I just don't think the script holds together for me. Mm. But okay, but I probably it, liked it more than you. Then I, I think, think. You, I think you did. Mm. But but if you um you look if you're into some if you're eager to uh, catch some Iranian American horror, the night is available on Miff Play. Uh, M, do you have any other uh, anything else you think should be highlighted or anything else you've enjoyed this week? I think there's uh, one that uh, is very polarizing. That's uh, that I probably liked more than um, what I've read of other reviews, which is the Coming Home in the Dark, the New Zealand horror film, which is another another debut film. Mm. Um, Director James Ashcroft. Yeah, I have to say that the debuts that I'm seeing um, have been just. Uh, stratospheric in terms of their level of skill of di- directing. I've been incredibly impressed. Now, whether this comes together co- as a complete film or not, his direction is still really remarkable. Um, I saw actually our friend Stephen A. Russell said that he thought that the direct- the acting was terrible in this. Um, I would say the exact opposite. I thought they were incredible, the performances. Uh, but it's been compared to um, Haneke's, Michael Haneke's Funny Games and um, also Wolf Creek, which will probably give you a little bit of an idea of what this film is like. So it's particularly nasty um, and they are very um, worthwhile comparisons, although Funny Games is delves much deeper into this idea of cinematic violence and... Um, how cinematic violence reflects the real world and all of this sort of stuff, Uh, whereas this film tries to steer a more traditional path in terms of seemingly the violence coming out of nowhere but then providing a source of motivation to it, Um, which probably sends it a little awry only because at at certain points um, it goes into this uh, reflection like sort of... um, imagery looking back at another another event which I think took it out of the moment I think it should have stuck in its mm. current time and just gone along with that and but just referred to the moment yeah 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 exactly but um I, I think this is not a film for everyone yeah. <laughs> because it is it is particularly nasty but I, I was quite impressed I don't think it totally came together but I was I was pretty impressed with what was done here. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. I, 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 I like. I, I, I agree largely with that. I think those two comparisons don't do this film any favors because I, I think it's not in Funny Games' league, and Wolf Creek no, is a very no. different kind of experience. Do, like, do you know what the Wolf Creek thing was though, Paul? I think it was just the total headlights that 
you know, the descent oh, okay. down yeah. the road. I think that was ex- that was the Wolf Creek correlation, whereas the just the violence, the the so-called friend, hand of friendship come out from nowhere, that was not really a hand of friendship. No, it, it's almost got a kind of a, like, something David Hess would have been in in the 70s. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, mm. so it got a little bit of that it's going that nasty. On. Yeah, it's it's in that, not quite as you need a hazmat suit, you know, to, to, to deal with it. It's not quite that Is nasty. Easy listening song crooned by the protagonist <laughs> or the villain. Sadly not. No. Um, but that was there... a Hess specialty. <laughs> so good. Um, although some of it's awful as well. Um, no jaunty tracks about serial killers. Um, yeah, I think it does. Again, it's another film that has this great opening and this solid ending, but circles the drain for the middle third. Like it makes its point mm. early and often. Um, I think the the, um, the two of the perform. I think part of the one of my issues with the film is that the, I think the partners are more interesting than the protagonists. Like I think mm. the the wife and the and the other Krim Tubbs. I think they're the best performances in the film. And I, she and was incredible. She's fantastic. I yeah. need a word to Stephen Russell about that because I think she's. I think the film's lesser mm-hmm. for it once she's off screen. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, and and there's there's definitely you know an interrogation of government-run institutions and things like that, and there's a, a morally complex, there's a moral complexity to this film that I that I quite admired. But yeah, I don't, I think there's yeah, I think there's one too many soliloquies in the middle of the film. I don't, yeah, I'm like you, I don't think the flashback stuff works. There's a line at the end of the film which I think is meant to be profound, but it made me laugh when he said it. It's. <laughs> There's yeah, I, but but despite these issues, I think it's a thoughtful script. It's morally thorny, and I think you're right. I think Ashcroft shows enough assured command of atmosphere and tension to really make him one to watch. Mm, mm. So that's coming home in the dark. Uh, so coming home in the dark, and um, what was the other film we discussed? The night. Uh, both, La notte. La notte. La <laughs> notte. Uh, we keep coming back to La notte. Uh, both <laughs> available on the Myth Play streaming platform until August 22nd. That's Sunday. Visit play.myth.com.au. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Emma Westwood, Cerise Howard, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Now join us in front of the computer for the last bunch of films we'll be discussing. I think a child comes into the world and that child is a human being and sex research tells us that that child would be probably a bisexual human being, that she or he responds to men touching her, women touching her, males, females, in equal ways. That child is capable of receiving love and affection. And yet the minute that that child is born and, and, you know, the sex of the child is discovered, that's the time that we start to make a half person out of that baby. So that was a clip from the landmark documentary Word is Out, Stories of Some of Our Lives, but which we'll uh, be chatting about soon. But first, we're going to look at Riders of Justice, which is the newest feature film from um, Danish director Anders Thomas Jensen. Um, career soldier Marcus, played by Mads Mikkelsen, cuts short his deployment in Kosovo to care for his teenage daughter, Mathilde, after his wife is killed in a train crash. But then he has visitors, a fretful statistician, played by Nikolai Lykas and his hacker friends, who believe the crash was no accident. According to their calculations, it was masterminded by the outlaw bikey gang Riders of Justice uh, to silence a witness who was about to testify against them. 
the PTSD afflicted Marcus needs no further excuse to unleash his very particular set of skills, but can he hide his vigilante campaign from Matilde? And uh, is there something other than statistics going into the reasoning of what happened? So this is the film I chose to lead off with tonight. I've, this is an interesting one because I found this to be a supremely entertaining film. Totally, oh, isn't it? Yes. I agree. Totally wild in a very Nordic kind of way. It is one of those films where you, there's moments where it's like, am I meant to find this funny or upsetting? I'm not sure. About chance, circumstance and vengeance, but I don't know if it entirely works. Um, it's it's like Anders Thomas Jensen's scripts, um, whether his own darkly comedic films or, for, or Suzanne Beer's dramas, um, They've always dealt with the weight of choices, the, the traumatic scars we carry, and the difficulty of healthily expressing emotions. And this film plays to those strengths with its hilarious, with its um, its damaged foursome kind of forming this makeshift family, um, family unit of loose units, uh, while bickering hilariously, committing acts of extreme violence, and skirting the line between comedy and drama and taste, while hurling sensitivity out the window. Even though the film's heart is in a genuinely sweet place. The cast are brilliant. Like, I loved everybody in this film. Um, Mickelson is terrifying as this kind of monosyllabic rage machine. Um, Nikolai Lykas is, like, kind of the flip side of that. He's this beautiful, like, kind of sensitive, broken mathematician who just seems like he needs a hug the whole time. Um, The dialogue's funny. The film's chock full of action, incident, connections and musings on fate, chance, trauma and interconnectivity which is what doesn't quite all the way work uh, for me. I found Jensen picks up these themes and discards them whenever convenient to the plot I really, or when he wants to make a point. Outside of the initial setup and the way it drives the statistician character, it's not really baked into the story as fundamentally or, or as compellingly as I thought it could be or should be. So its comments on those things are incidental rather than kind of it, it, I think it misses a bit of an opportunity to be shocking, moving, or profound, which sounds like a big ask. But there's stuff in this film and Jensen's talents that it's it's very capable of being all those things. All the bits mm-hmm. are there. Um, so ultimately, despite the affection we feel for the characters, the emotional finales just didn't hit as hard as they could have. Everything seemed a little bit kind of, I don't know, arch. Uh, but it is a bloody and bloody good time. <laughs> And you get Mads in a Christmas sweater. So really, what more can you ask? Em, you saw this one too. I did. He went all Colin Firth on us, didn't he? he? Sort of, you know, from Bridget Jones' diary. Still looked like he wanted to smash somebody. (laughs) Mads was fantastic. I mean, Mads is always fantastic. What can we we say? Uh, I I actually really like this. I think it did work. Um, for me, Paul, I think that yeah, you look what you say about maybe certain emotional points could have hit, you know, a bit sharper at certain times. But I don't think that that really was what this film was about. I think that it, it it's it felt like the most apart from Coda, which I have also seen Coda. Um, this is mo- the most commercial film I've yeah. seen in the festival and um, the most, therefore, probably the, you know, the most approachable film. Um, but I like the way that it, it it kind of in terms of its its tone, it felt like, and strangely tonight we have talked about a few films that have interesting tones <laughs> in terms of combining comedy in some very serious um, subject matter. 
same with this, you know, combining comedy um, with serious subject matter, which I think it did very well. And it reminded me, same, same, but different, of the way that uh, Bong Joon-ho would use mm. his comedy um, and then combine it with drama. And the, I guess this idea of this crazy cast of characters kind of, <laughs> you know, fit into that as well, you know, the, the personalities. I mean, all these guys really, they were kind of that idea of those spectrum-y geniuses, yes. if you know, you know what I mean, you know, uh, um, all walking to their own, the beat of their own drum, um, but I did like the way it played on that kind of sliding doors phenomenon as well. Um, if you make this choice, what could happen with your world? And it, it kind of unpacked that, I think, in a more interesting way than, well, not a more interesting way than I've seen it done, but a different way to mm. what I've seen it done without going down the same old sliding doors, um, you know, corridor. But um, I found it to be immensely satisfying and I think as just, a, you know, in some ways an easy watch that has some depth to it, this is a really great choice for people. Um, Coda will be, Coda's not playing again as part of the uh, Melbourne Film Festival, but it's an immensely, it's an audience pleaser and that's on Apple TV now. So I just thought it's worthwhile putting in a, a mention because it is a great antidote to the the feels that are going on in our society is, at yes. the moment. Yeah, there's a, so. there's been a lot of films I've watched for this myth so far that have been a bit of hard work or have been kind of just not quite connecting things. Yeah, this is just – and that's the thing. Like I said, I, I think what doesn't work for me is all thematic. I think mm. the film and and like I think the film itself, like I said, it is supremely entertaining. You you are you're not going to not have a good time watching Riders of Justice. You're gonna you're gonna have fun. Um, a couple of others I just want to call real quick attention to. There is yeah, um, probably the objectively best like sort of film I've seen, or at least most worthwhile film I've seen at MIF so far, uh, is uh, Word Is Out. Um, I don't know if you've seen this I haven't series. yet, but I certainly will. Mm. Yeah, um, which is this, kind of, this landmark documentary that was made in 1977 um, that's just 26 gay men and women expressing the truth of their lives and experience to camera in a safe space. The film was directed by um, queer filmmakers. Um, and and putting themselves on camera and saying this stuff, which is incredibly brave for them to submit in mid 1970s America. This was a time that, depending on where you lived, you could still be fired from your job or run out of town for being <laughs> still can. gay. Yeah, this is not only a snapshot of lives at a certain period of time, but also a celebration of people seeing a long overdue change in attitudes and legislations, like the, the the cracks beginning to shift, daring to envision a future in which they can openly be themselves. It's candid. It's affectionate. It's frequently amusing um, as they kind of just go through how they've survived certain situations, their first loves, how they first found out who they, you know, who they were. Um, there is a slight sort of pall of sadness that, that you do feel knowing that the AIDS epidemic is around the corner. But I have found out that at least half of the participants, I don't know about the rest, but at least half did survive through to the mm -hmm. 21st century, which is fantastic. Um, 
there's nothing about the form of filmmaking that's particularly striking, innovative or even cinematic, but just the interviews themselves are so deservedly placed centre stage. And for this perspective alone, just gay filmmakers documenting ordinary gay Americans in, in you know, a period when these things could not really be discussed publicly, it's a landmark. Was there any suggestion this footage had appeared anywhere else before or has it just been sat on all this time, do you know? It's, I, yeah, I'm not sure what's happened with the release of this film. I, I, I feel like it's an anniversary sort of thing. I, yeah, I, I'm not I'm not sure. Because there was a 30th anniversary DVD released back in 2008. Oh, I see. So it's, so it's been out in the world before. Oh, I, I see. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure why it's uh, popped up now, but it is absolutely worth, um, worth a look. Um, and uh, yeah, I've also liked a couple of others like New Order and Stray, but we don't have enough time to go into those. So uh, your list. So, but just letting you know before I uh, throw to the uh, sponsor announcements, these are all available on the Miff Play platform. You're listening to the Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. On tonight's second and last episode uh, of our two special episodes devoted to the films of the 69th Melbourne International Film Festival, we discussed Dear Comrades. The Night, Riders of Justice, and also gave recommendations to The Nowhere Inn, Hopper Wells, Coming Home in the Dark, Word is Out, Stories of Some of Our Lives, New Order, and Stray, all available to rent online via the Miff Play streaming platform until August 22nd. Visit play.miff.au to see these and more. Next week, I'm going to take a well-earned week off as Flick Ford returns to host as Will Cox and Triple R fave Daniel James of The Mission join her for a timely spotlight on films dealing with climate change. Uh, log on to the Primal Screen social media outlook, outlets on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter this weekend to discover what films they'll be discussing. A huge thank you to Morty Osborne for editing the Primal Screen podcast and Carl Chapman for panelling the show and providing producing assistance. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 